Yes, Lord, indeed, you have been faithful. Your word tells us that you are faithful. It states the matter. Your word shows us that you've been faithful with story after story. And Lord, in our lives, you have proven yourself faithful again and again, morning by morning. And especially in the cross and resurrection and that grace applied to our lives. We thank you for it all. And we pray, Lord, that in your faithfulness, you would speak to us afresh through your word. Help us as we look into it. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And we pray you would be faithful once again. For Jesus' sake, amen. You could be seated. Well, we're in Genesis 44 and 45 today as we continue our study through this first book of the Bible, Genesis. From time to time, my wife and I find ourselves reflecting on the path of our lives, and we'll say something like, who'd have thunk it? Who'd have thunk it that we would live in Albuquerque, of all places, where Bugs Bunny was supposed to take a right-hand turn? Who'd have thunk that we would be a part of this wonderful church for now almost 20 years? Or who'd have thunk that we would have three kids living in Louisville, Kentucky these days? Or who'd have thunk that I get to partner in ministry with Drew Hodge, our music pastor, who I used to do youth camps with back in the early 2000s? And I could go on and on, and you could as well. I'm sure our family is not alone in having such conversations of pondering and marveling at God's curious and unforeseen providence in our lives. Much of it is so sweet. Some of it is very hard. But God has proven faithful through it all. And isn't it interesting how certain events, certain people, certain encounters can prove so pivotal in our lives? We don't know it at the time, but with years of hindsight, we can look back and say, well, if this didn't happen, then that wouldn't have happened. I'll give you an example from our lives. Our connection to this church which started back in 2003, came through one couple, Ron and Tracy Seaman. We were friends with Ron and Tracy back in Lynchburg, Virginia, starting in 1996. We met them because Sarah was their kid's piano teacher. And Sarah became their piano teacher because Tracy one day saw Sarah's flyer for piano lessons on a church bulletin board, a church that neither the Kellys nor the Siemens went to. And she saw it, and she, you know, plucked that little phone number thing off the bottom of a flyer. Do they still do that today? Okay. Well, they did it back then, and she did it back then. Humanly speaking... I don't know how I ever would have had a connection to this church if Tracy Seaman didn't tear off that little piece of paper back in 1996. Well, we've been seeing that kind of providence, that kind of 
Who'd have thunk it stuff? In the life of Joseph and his brothers in the book of Genesis over the last several weeks. It's taken us just a few weeks, but it took them 22 years to go through it. What seemed like a terrible turn, that fateful day back in Genesis 37, where the brothers sold their 17-year-old brother into slavery, and he was carted off to Egypt. What seemed like a terrible turn that day. And humanly speaking, it was. Let's not minimize it. But God was in it. He had purposes for it. Huge purposes. Purposes that ring out even to today. God needed his servant Joseph in Egypt. And he got him there. And he exalted him there. And he used him there for people to survive a seven-year famine. And so we saw last week how the brothers came to Egypt for grain during this widespread famine. And they had curious and complicated conversations with the man in charge. He knew they were his brothers. They didn't know he was their brother. He tested them. He tested them to see if they were the same treacherous, untrustworthy men or if there was any change. He overheard them confess their guilt about what they had done to their little brother two decades before. And so there seemed to be change. Things looked hopeful. But this week we'll see that after one more test of these brothers in Genesis 44, then, only then, in chapter 45, is Joseph ready to reveal to them that he is their long-lost brother. It's the big reveal that we've been waiting for. But Joseph will also reveal something even bigger in the passage, something bigger than his identity as their brother. Genesis 44 and 45, we'll start by reading just the first chapter. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the man's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You've done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from our Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants." He said, let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant, 
and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. And you said to your servants, bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes, goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our younger brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Well, like last week, there are a couple of headings we can put over chapter 44, and then a few others we can put over chapter 45 when we get there. Here's the first. We can call it final examination. Final examination. That's the first half of chapter 44. Remember, in chapters 42 and 43, we saw two tests that Joseph put to his brothers. And they passed those tests 
proving that they're not the same kind of men that they were decades ago. And so as chapter 43 is drawn to a close over some celebratory wine among all the brothers, it seemed like we were ready to move forward. But Joseph first has one more test, a final exam, just to make sure. And Joseph has his servant place a royal cup in the bag of the youngest brother, Benjamin. And the confrontation of this alleged theft will be telling. Now this cup of divination, as it's called, would typically be used of royalty and high-ranking officials as a means of sorcery, magic, divination. One would apparently interpret the ripples in the liquid of the cup as signs for what something meant or what should be done. Now, I don't think that Joseph has been using this cup like this. He later words things quite carefully. Notice verse 15. Don't you know a man like me can practice divination? He's being sneaky and shrewd, but he's not admitting he's practiced divination. He doesn't need it. He gets dreams. But this cup in the sack provides another test when the youngest is caught with it. Will the brothers assume that Benjamin stole it? Will the brothers think to themselves, oh great, another little brother who's entitled and thinks great things for himself. Will the brothers turn on Benjamin? Will they abandon him at the threat of imprisonment? Or will they have concern for him? Will they stand with him? And twice they attempt to stand with Benjamin. If he is thought to be guilty then put us all in enslavement and imprisonment. And twice that offer is refused. No, the one guilty shall be enslaved. The rest are free to go. And it's there that Judah really steps it up. So now secondly, the second half, Judah's intercession. Judah's intercession. We saw last week that Judah was starting to emerge as a leader of the family, even more so than his old dad. And that is quite remarkable for a guy whose idea it was to sell his brother into slavery 22 years ago, not to mention the same guy who was involved in that whole Tamar debacle, But hear his speech to Joseph. The longest speech in all of Genesis. It's a model of humility and boldness. Concern and compassion. Selflessness and sacrifice. He reviews for Joseph the circumstances and conversations that took place back home in Canaan. Joseph you'll remember, demanded that Benjamin 
returned, or rather was brought to Egypt by the brothers. And this elicited no small debate back home in Canaan. Father Jacob was not willing for his youngest to go. It was only when they were almost completely out of grain again that he relented. But he said this before Benjamin was taken to Egypt. If Benjamin doesn't return to me, it'll kill me. That same phrase is repeatedly used by Jacob back in Canaan. You will bring down my gray hairs to Sheol, the place of the dead. And it's retold to Joseph multiple times again in our passage. So here, Judah shows concern for his father. Concern for his father's potential grief. And that is a very different situation than anything we saw back in chapter 37, where the brothers in total had no concern for their father's grief when they reported, or at least implied, that Joseph was dead. They had seemingly little concern for their father's grief that had now stretched over two decades as they held up this lie. But Judah is a man who has faced his sin and his guilt. Judah is a man who has encountered grace. Judah is a man who is being transformed by that grace. And here he is a different man. And so now his greatest concern is not what he can get out of it. Not his own protection. His concern is for his father. For his feelings. For his life. And so Judah recounts to Joseph how he gave his life as a pledge to the father for Benjamin's safe return. But he now here takes that up a notch. And he offers himself as a substitute for Benjamin's punishment. Remember, that's the immediate threat. That's the immediate concern. Because of that test with the cup that was discovered in Benjamin's bag, he is about to face imprisonment and servitude. And so verse 33, Judah says, Please let your servant remain instead of the boy. Let the boy go back to his father. This is the first willing human substitution offered in the Bible. It's not the first time we've seen anything about substitution. Remember, there was the slain animals after the great sin in the garden where God used the skins of those slain animals to provide covering for naked and guilty Adam and Eve. Or how about when Abraham was willing to offer his own son Isaac upon the altar until God provided a ram, a substitute. That idea of a substitute will become significant in the next book of the Bible, Exodus, when blood is applied to the doorposts of the Hebrews' homes and the angel of death passes over those homes. Substitution. But Judah is the first human Willing substitute in the Bible. That theme 
grows and swells in the prophecy of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. It's substitution. But the reason for all those examples of substitution in the Old Testament is so that they would point ahead to the final, perfect, the once for all, substitute sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon that cross. All the previous substitutions were like tributaries, little little lines of water that, that flow into this giant, mighty, flowing river. And so we read in the New Testament of passages like Hebrews 2, which was read for us already, or 1 Peter 3.18, that the just suffered for the unjust that we might be brought to God. Or as Jesus put it in Matthew 20, he said the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, a payment for many. In our place condemned he stood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Do you know this Savior? The substitute sacrifice. The stories of the Bible are all heading in this direction. They're all pointing ahead to this fulfillment of Jesus, the Son of God, Son of Abraham, Son of David, born of a woman, and yet God himself, who died upon that cross, not as some unfortunate accident, not to show us merely how to turn the cheek to our enemies, but as a payment for sin. Would you believe that today and ask him for it, receive it? Well, back to Judah's speech before Joseph. Judah finishes the speech and Joseph weeps uncontrollably. Well, let's read it. Chapter 45, we'll read a handful of verses here at the beginning of this chapter. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. 
So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord to all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. We'll stop there. Here's the third thing we're beginning to see in chapter 45. Joseph's revelation. Joseph's revelation. This point of my five points will take the longest. I think it's about a third of the sermon, if my math is correct. So just buckle up, just so you know. We need to give it the most time because there's so much going on, and it is the interpretive key to the whole Joseph narrative. Amidst all that crying... Joseph finally reveals to his brothers, verse 3, I am Joseph. And here is the big reveal that we've been waiting for. And how did the brothers take it? Verse 3, they couldn't answer him and were dismayed. In other words, they were shocked. They were afraid. The second most powerful Man in the world in those days had just revealed to them that he is their brother. The brother that they sold into slavery 22 years before. So there is indeed reason to fear and caution about what you say next. But Joseph responds, verse 4, come near to me, please. Yes, I am Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. But do not be distressed or angry with yourself. Stop there. What grace. How gracious is how How personal is this? How comforting this should be. And this should feel very familiar to us as Christians. The shadows of Genesis are cast long across the pages of our Bibles. And so Judah as a substitute is one of those ways that Genesis foreshadows what's to come. But Joseph's actions here are also amazingly Christ-like. Joseph reveals himself to people who at first couldn't comprehend who he is. He reveals himself. And at that revelation of himself, people are rightly in awe. They're confounded, even afraid. But he speaks a word of comfort. Do not be afraid. And he encourages them, draw near. Come close. We find multiple encounters with Jesus in the gospel accounts that follow similar lines and similar language. But Joseph then adds a strong theological basis for why they don't have to be distressed. Verses 5 to 8 are so key. This is the theological interpretive key to the whole Joseph narrative. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, 
but God. Now, again here, like so many times as we've studied the book of Genesis together, we have to remember that oh-so-important Abrahamic covenant. If that's new to you, you can find it in chapter 12 and 15 and 17 and 22 and others. Now, here it isn't explicitly mentioned in our passage, but if we've been reading Genesis carefully, then the themes are unmistakable. Because in the Abrahamic covenant, God promised that from one man, Abraham, there would come a great offspring, a multitude, a great nation of people. And in these people, from this nation would come a specific seed, a specific offspring. And eventually, in all this, there would come blessing to the nation. And amidst a seven-year famine that reached to Canaan, there is potential threat to those promises. At the 12 sons of Jacob, at that point in the story, we're only four generations in since the first promises were given to Father Abraham. And so at this point in the story, they are not a nation, they are not many in number, And they are not much of a blessing to anyone. But with Joseph in Egypt, interpreting dreams and using God-given wisdom to have grain on hand during a famine, there is survival. The covenant family survives, which means the promises are held tight. They're held intact. So this story isn't just about one family's survival, let alone their conflict resolution. It's ultimately about the survival of the promises of God. It's about nothing less than God's covenant with humanity. It's about the plan of God for the world. Joseph in Egypt means not only the survival of those promised people, the people of God, but it's even the advancement of the Abrahamic covenant. As now, in Egypt, through Joseph, God is blessing the nations. No, that's not the end of the story by any means. This is just the first book of the Bible. But this is good. The plan is sure. It's moving right along. It's moving along Sometimes at a snail's pace. Yes, through winding, unpredictable paths. Yes, in and through some really messed up people. But the plan is moving right along. Everything is according to plan. And this is the really big reveal. I said there's a big reveal. And then there's a really big reveal. This is the really big reveal. It's not Joseph's identity that he's the brother. But what God was doing in it all. You sold me, but God sent me. There it is. You sold me, but God sent me. Or as Joseph will more famously put it in chapter 50, verse 20. You, brothers, meant evil for me but God meant it for good. Can I give us just sort of a theological sidebar here on God's sovereignty? Because it's so relevant to the story and it's so relevant to our suffering. 
When we think about the sovereignty of God, we shouldn't think that God does the best switcheroos in all the world. He takes bad situations and somehow he boomerangs them into better situations like jujitsu or something. But neither does it mean that God does evil or that he tempts anyone to sin. The Bible's very clear on that. And yet he is sovereign over all. Not just the good, but also the bad. Not just the small, but also the big. Yes, human beings are fully responsible. They are responsible for their sin. The brothers did sin. They acted wickedly. They were guilty. And that's why forgiveness and reconciliation was needed. God's sovereignty doesn't remove human responsibility. And how exactly human beings are fully responsible and God is completely sovereign is a mystery. It is a mystery. But we can't minimize God's sovereignty just because we can't fully understand it. And even more than acknowledge it. We must embrace it. We must lean into it. We must stand upon it. We must, time and time again, come back to it for great comfort, especially when evil is done to us. Do you ever play that what-if game as you look back on the winding road of providence in your life? What if? What if this didn't happen? Then that might not have happened. Like, what if Tracy Seaman never called Sarah Kelly for piano lessons? Well, we can play the what if game in the life of Joseph. Go back to the beginning of the story with me. And let me just read this for time's sake so that I don't add any more words than are necessary. This is just what I typed out this morning thinking about it. What if there was no favoritism in the family? then there's no special coat. If there's no special coat, then the brothers don't resent Joseph. If there's no resentment, then there's no reason to do him harm. If there's no Reuben to convince the brothers to sell Joseph rather than kill him, then there's no Joseph. What if the slave traders weren't coming by at just the right time? What if the slave traders were going someplace besides Egypt? What if Potiphar's wife never wrongly accused Joseph? Then there'd be no imprisonment. With no imprisonment, Joseph isn't there to interpret the cupbearer's dreams. No interaction with the cupbearer? Then there's no meeting with Pharaoh to interpret his dreams. No meeting with Pharaoh, no interpreting his dreams, then Joseph doesn't have the place of prominence in Egypt. Without Joseph in prominence in Egypt, then there is no survival for the family. There is no blessing to the nations. There is no line of Judah. There is no genealogy in Matthew 1 that gets us to Jesus. There is no salvation. And yet going through it wasn't easy for Joseph. 
going through it wasn't always clear. It wasn't always clear what God was up to. And in our lives, God doesn't always show us all the connections. He never shows us all the connections. He does sometimes show us in our lives with the passage of time some connections, some things we can see and marvel at. Who to thunk? What if? But even better than those experiences and more reliable than those experiences, he has told us in his word that he is faithful, that he is sovereign, that he's good and wise in all that he does. And he's given us a few key stories that peel back the curtain and show his handiwork along the way. Stories like Joseph. Stories like Job. Stories like Jesus. That's why Peter in Acts 2, when he preached that famous sermon at Pentecost, he said this Jesus was delivered up to the cross according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This Jesus you crucified. They had blood on their hands. They crucified the Son of God. And yet, mysteriously, it was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And at the cross, the greatest evil that has ever been done as the Son of God was slaughtered is also the place we find the greatest good that's ever been provided for humanity. Corrie Ten Boom, she hid Jews during the Holocaust and was caught doing so and was sent to a concentration camp. She wrote a poem about the tapestry of our lives. Picture a tapestry, the top of it, beautiful, a picture. The bottom of it, not so much, messy. It's not clear what the picture is. She said our lives are like that. Here's the poem. She said, my life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors. He weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow. And I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. Amen to that. Well, back to Genesis 45. I won't read it, but note in verse 9 that Joseph has a plan for the boys to fetch dad back in Canaan and return to Egypt. He wants to unite the family and provide for them. And then there's the culmination of the brother's reconciliation that takes place in verse 14. He fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. They kissed all the brothers and wept upon them. And after this, his brothers talked with him. Well, yeah, because in chapter 37 it said they couldn't speak peaceably with Joseph. Now they talk. They talk and they do not argue. Joseph's lack of bitterness here is remarkable. It's remarkable. 
We wonder how. How could someone who has been sinned against so greatly forgive so freely and love so deeply? Well, he was not only eager to forgive, but he trusted a sovereign God behind it all. May we be quick to forgive those serious wrongs that have been done to us, especially when the offender is willing to repent. But whether they repent or not, may we trust God's sovereign hand in it all. But we must read on for time's sake. Look at verse 16. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this, load your beasts, and go back to the land of Canaan. And take your father and your households, and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father, and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. And here we see, fourthly, Pharaoh's provision. Pharaoh's provision. How remarkable that Pharaoh gets in on blessing this newly reconciled family. Blessing them so abundantly. I won't read it all, but look down verses 21 to 24. There where Joseph does just as Pharaoh told him to do. He gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh. And curiously, this is added, verse 22, look at that. To each and all of them, he gave them a change of clothes. Ironic, huh? They once tore his clothes right off him. That special robe here, he clothes them. Even more curious, to Benjamin, he gave five changes of clothes. Eleven brothers, ten brothers rather, got a change of clothes. That's good. Benjamin got five. What's telling here is what's not said. Because Benjamin is graciously favored, and the brothers do not complain. And yet Joseph is also a realist. So verse 24, as they departed, Joseph said, do not quarrel on the way. (laughs) Oh. These are men who are being transformed by grace, but they're not in heaven. They're not perfect. They still sin. They are forgiven sinners. And another reason why Joseph has to give them this reminder as they depart is that they're going to have a long journey back to Canaan discussing how Father Jacob will be told the news. Who's going to say it? What are you going to say? Well, that's a lot of potential for quarreling under such circumstances. But then they arrive. And let's read on. Verse 25. So they went out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb for he did not believe them. 
But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Under this section, we can put this heading, Jacob's Consolation. Jacob's consolation. He's not immediately consoled. He hears this news, and his heart was numb, and he didn't believe it. Perhaps he thought, these sons of mine, so cruel, so mean, so sinful, are they lying, are they playing a trick? Perhaps he thought that. Perhaps it just seemed so improbable, even impossible, that Joseph could possibly be alive after all this time and after all these tears but they told the old man all the words that Joseph said like that interpretive key of verses 5 through 8 and this mission to go get dad and the family and bring him to Egypt and at these words and seeing the obvious evidence That all this had to be true with these wagons and these flocks. The spirit of their father was revived. And rightly so, Jacob believed, my son is alive. And this should feel familiar to us as Christians as well. Each gospel account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all end with a report that Jesus is alive. And while Jesus actually died, Joseph has gone through a death-like experience and a resurrection-like experience. His father has presumed him dead all these years, but now he is alive. At first, Jacob can't believe the news that he hears, But just as those who first heard of the resurrection of Jesus, they get more words, and some got more proof, and they believed, and their spirit was revived. Now, Joseph will not live forever. He's alive here in our passage, he's dead these days. Genesis 50 will record his request for what to do with his bones when he dies. He'll die. He's dead. But Jesus has passed through death into life and life eternal. He's alive forevermore. There's a refrain in Revelation. The one who lives forevermore. He lives forevermore. Forevermore. And he now offers eternal life to any and all who would believe him and trust him for salvation. Praise God, he lives. I grew up singing an old hymn, Because He Lives. It's a little hokey, but, but I, it comes to me sometimes in the car, and I, I need it, so I close with this. God sent his son. They called him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He lived and died for my pardon. 
An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. So because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future, life is worth the living because he lives. Let's pray. Yes, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your substitute sacrifice upon that cross, for your glorious resurrection, and for the forgiveness and grace and mercy that can be ours if we simply turn from our sin, confess that we're sinners, and believe that you have eternal life. Help us to believe that. Help us to live in light of it. Help us to proclaim that until our dying day. For your sake we pray, amen.